This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Alberta's burning. Alberta's on fire, friends. And we're going to be talking about that out of the gates today. The entire country is watching as wild firefighters, wildland fire crews from across the country are making their way to this prairie province to do what they can to stop more than 100, nearly 110 fires, uh, more than 30 of them out of control. Coming up in just a moment on the show today, we're going to talk to a wildfire expert. Uh, Dr. Mike Flanagan has been in this for a long time, studying wildfires for more than four decades. He's going to give us a sense of why the fire season is so early, uh, why it started off uh, in in such a a remarkable fashion, and what this says bigger picture, why this story needs to be on the radar of Canadians and other people paying attention around the world. Of course, all eyes on Alberta for other reasons as well. It's week two of the election campaigns, though many of them are suspended due to those wildfires that we're talking about. Susan Wright, many know her as the political blogger behind Susan on the Soapbox. She's a lawyer out of Calgary. Uh, We're going to check in with her to see what storylines she's keeping an eye on. I want to pick her brain on something in particular. A lot of you have been in touch with the show looking for comments on whether or not it's appropriate, uh, whether or not it's it's, uh, you know, passable, whether or not you can stomach the fact that Alberta's United Conservative Party is not campaigning. In other words, not including in its platform some of the biggest conversation pieces, uh, the subject matter of some of the then Premier Daniel Smith's biggest musings over the past number of months. Of course, right now we refer to her as the leader of the United Conservative Party. She wants to be Premier. Daniel Smith does. So does Rachel Notley. And a big part of what Ms. Smith is campaigning on, or at least has talked about in past, has been an Alberta pension plan, pulling out of CPP, an Alberta police force, and of course, bigger picture, the Alberta sovereignty within a United Canada Act. None of this can be found in the UCP's election platform. Does that fly with you? Remember all the talk about Rachel Notley back in 2015 into 2016 and that NDP government introducing a carbon tax. What was one of, if not the biggest complaints that her detractors, that her political opponents put in front of you, the electorate? Well, it was the fact that Rachel Notley didn't campaign on that carbon tax. So if Danielle Smith and the United Conservatives are to not campaign on something major like Alberta pulling out of the Canada pension plan and then move forward with a plan like that, what could the political ramifications be? And isn't now before the election the time to be talking about that? We're going to get into that with Susan Wright. That's coming up in about 20 minutes. This episode of Real Talk is presented by We Know Training. You can find them online today at weknowtraining.ca. Are you ready to take your training to the next level? Look no further. Uh, Their company partners with associations across North America to deliver world-class online training, continuing education, professional development, and credentialing programs. They've got top-of-the-line LMS software, and with that, associations and regulators can generate new revenue streams and 
support their operations by monetizing their training programs. Now, this enables them, of course, to fund new initiatives and create even more exceptional training opportunities. But wait, there's more! Association members can also benefit from We Know Training programs by enhancing everything to do with, well, staying current. With their latest professional development trends, of course, you want everybody to become and stay an expert in their respective fields, right? If you're an association leader looking to create new opportunities for your members and your organization, don't miss out on an exciting chance to partner with We Know Training. You can give them an email today at partnerships at weknowtraining.ca to learn more and start your training journey today. Well, this has been the big story across the country over the weekend, maybe with the exception of the coronation of King Charles and Camilla. Ooh. Johnny, did you happen to did you wake up early on Sunday, by the way, and pay attention to that at all? Is I that did. something you watched? No, I caught the highlights on Twitter, though. It's it's awfully awkward how they put the crowns on. It's so it's so like ancient and just the way and God save the king. It I guess just that's seems, kind of the point of it. It's right? right out of a movie. It's really strange. I heard a number floating around, and I don't know if this is true. I don't know how this is possibly true, mm-hmm. but I heard people saying, including experts, I'm talking journalists, correspondents saying that the cost of this event was upwards of $500 million. No. A half a billion Jeez. dollars spent on the coronation of King Charles III and, and Camilla. Oh so I don't know, man. I, we're going to be talking to Charles Adler, by the way. He'll be joining us. He's in transit this week. He's traveling. And so he's going to be joining us tomorrow. He'll be joining us on Tuesday. I want to ask him about this. Mm. I know that this is kind of an opportune time to sit and take pot shots at the royal family. But I do think mm-hmm. it's one of those opportunities to put your finger on the pulse and get a sense of where people are at yeah. You know, with, with Canada's ties to the monarchy the royal family and everything some people into it some people are my mom and my grandmother are, are were up like early in the morning making a pot of tea they watched the whole thing from start to finish and i just i just, I just couldn't really care i mean if you love it you love it <laughs> yeah. if you can't stand it you know you're probably indifferent about mm-hmm. stuff like this it all seems a little silly. It does when you watch it. It's, yeah, it's a little grand. <laughs> you can send us an email if we are already ticking you off less than 10 minutes into this week's episodes. Of course, you know where to find us. Talk at ryanjesperson.com. Wildfires are burning. Like I was saying, I mean, aside from the coronation, this was the story this weekend. I'm talking national news. The province of Alberta is on fire. More than 30,000 people at least have been displaced, many of them remaining under evacuation order as fires spread across the province. More than 105 of them, the latest number. As we're doing this show, 108 fires burning, more than 30 of them out of control. So what are we to take from all of this? I mean, for a lot of people, this is directly relevant. They've fled their community and they're on the road right now. But bigger picture, why is this something that every Canadian needs to be paying attention to? Dr. Mike Flanagan is the research chair for predictive services, emergency management and fire science at Thompson's Rivers University. He's been studying wildfires for more than 40 years. If you want to talk about fires in Canada, this is your guy. Mike, thanks for making time for us today. Uh, this, I guess, is something that we, we come to expect every year. I mean, we call it fire season, but I don't know. This one just seems a lot earlier than normal. Well, here we go again. Okay, so remember 2011, Slave Lake, 2016, Fort McMurray, 2019, Chuck A. Creek, 
These are all May fires, significant May fire activity. So every three to five years, we seem to have one of these very active Mays. And, and here we are again, uh, burning across the province, Alberta on fire. And, uh, you know, there's a break right now, but you know, look out when we're not done yet. Is this break due to the fact that we saw some rain over the weekend? Temperatures dropped a little bit. I mean, is, is that pretty much what it is? I mean, not to take away from the obviously Herculean efforts of uh, the many firefighters that are working right now. Yeah, the rain helped it. We need a lot more rain to put out or a lot more fire management activity before these fires go out. So, you know, it's they didn't spread. Fire people often talk about spread days. And, you know, Friday, Saturday were spread days. Fires were spreading rapidly. Weather like yesterday, they didn't really do much. And the winds are fairly light, but, you know, the concern is we're going to heat up, okay? And how much? It's a bit fuzzy yet, but it looks like another heat event's coming um, later this week into the weekend, and then followed by a cold front. And this is kind of prime recipe for another flare-up. There's three things you need for a wildfire. Vegetation, fire people call it fuel. Then you need ignitions, people and lightning. Most of these May fires are caused by people. And then you need conducive fire weather, hot, dry, windy weather, like we had last week and part of the weekend. You get all three, you get a fire. And you may ask, why is May so busy? Okay, And in Canada, Alberta is the only jurisdiction with May is the busiest month. And part of it is you've heard this spring window, uh, spring dip, some people call it. After the snow goes, you've got all that dead organic grass, needles, leaves from last fall. And until it greens up, it's easy for a fire to start as long as it's not raining. So all across Canada, this happens, but it's more pronounced in Alberta for a couple of reasons. One, we get weather patterns that are very conducive to fire. These southeast winds we've had the last few days, big high pressure to the east, Arctic high pressure with dry air. And then you get a low pressure to the west, and then you get these strong winds. And that's exactly what happened. And it happens time and time again. And the second thing is, well, Saskatchewan might get something very similar, but they don't have the population. They don't have the human footprint on the landscape oil and gas, forestry, recreation. There's a lot more communities, railways. There's just a lot more people. When there's people, there is fire. So that's why Alberta has busy maze. We've got a, a an audience member here live chatting on our YouTube channel. M8 can says, well, none of these fires are deliberately set. I mean, we don't know that actually, but it goes on to say, but I'm sure some of them are certainly human caused off highway vehicles. Cigarettes are two of the most common causes. We've heard that before that even the spark from a hot exhaust pipe on a quad or a Jeep could in theory start a fire. When you say a lot of these are human caused, are you talking about arson are you talking about carelessness? I mean, are we talking bigger picture and climate change? I mean, let's have that conversation. So, you know, when we classify fire starts, different fire management agencies do it slightly differently, but the biggest classification is human or lightning. And then you can go various types of human cause, intentional, accidental. And, you know, arson in Canada plays a fairly minor role. Most of these fires right now are human caused. Most of them, I believe, are accidental. There are some lightning caused fires. We had some early lightning activity. You know, human fire dominate in the spring, lightning in the summer. So 
yeah, where we're seeing, you know, across Canada, human-caused fires are actually going down. And this is a good thing uh, because of fire bans, uh, public education, but lightning-caused fires are going the other way. They're, they're increasing and more than compensating. In fact, area burning in Canada has more than doubled since the 70s, and this is due to human-caused fires. You know, I, I just want to take a second to explain the size of these fires that we've just seen so far. Yeah. It's about 400,000 hectares, okay? And what does that mean? It's about five times the city of Edmonton or Calgary. These are huge chunks of real estates. So, yeah, you get some rain and, you know, you know, it smolders, but fire is opportunistic. It's probing. It's just waiting for a chance. And when the winds return, if that fire is not out, it can flare up and spread again. So, you know, the, the task is monumental. And, you know, hats off to first responders. They're working their butts off to save our communities, and they deserve all the credit. Mike, I mean, obviously, we'll say, you know, when I when I ask you, is there anything we can do about this? I mean, you know, if, if, the, if these big ones, I mean, you you talk about the history, even just in the past 10, 11, 12 years in Alberta, you're, you're mentioning some pretty huge fires. We're talking billions of dollars of property damage. Uh, you know, is there anything? I mean, you'll, you'll say, yeah, be more careful. Don't flick your cigarettes. Don't be an idiot while you're camping, that kind of thing. Observe fire bans and the like. But but, you know, we've seen some communities. I know Jasper has done a lot here, like cleaning up and, and, and clearing out some areas where there is a lot of tinder trying to keep those forests I don't know if the proper word is manicured but at least there's a lot of townships that are staying on top of that type of thing I mean what do we know about preventative measures and and, and how realistic are those in in the bigger context of keeping some of these fires from starting in the first place so human caused fires are preventable and you know fire bans should be observed but there's another step, it's called forest closure. Not popular, okay, because it means you shut down all industrial activities and all recreational activities. Where there's no people, there's no human-caused fires. Other jurisdictions have done this, California, Ontario, and it's only during the few critical days that we've just seen that the shutdown would occur. And that keeps people out of the forest and helps prevent you know, these starts. You know, a couple other things, You've heard Fire Smart Canada. Uh, there's a website, and they have seven principles to help communities and homeowners reduce the risk of wildfire. Early warning systems. Uh, I believe I was on you know the radio a week ago saying, "Look out! You know the potential is here for a significant fire activity." And having that early warning or enhanced early warning, then we can call to get resources from Ontario or Quebec where things are quiet to bring those extra resources and move them to the places where we think the fires will start. And then, you know, when fires are reported and they're unwanted, close to a community, for example, then they can put them out. When the fires are small, it's easy to put them out. But once they start getting big, like we have now, it's really challenging and takes a lot of time. And it's mostly done by boots on the ground. Those men and women who fight the fires. They're the ones that put the fire out. Uh, Dwayne asks a good question. I want to circle back on this. He says, well, what about the people who do say that arson is the cause? I've seen it all over social media. And, and typically it comes as part of a conversation where someone introduces the idea around climate change and then somebody else claps back and says, well, it's not climate change. And, and <laughs> for those that are listening on the podcast, I'll let them know, Mike, that you just buried your face in your hands for a second. How come? So, Every fire is investigated. Uh, and maybe I'll make a distinction here. Um, 
Alberta wildfire is responsible for what they call the green zone, forested areas. Municipalities, cities are responsible for those other areas. So every fire in the green zone is investigated to determine if it's lightning, human caused, and whether it was, you know, burning a field or a quad or arson. And yes, there is arson. The numbers are really low. Places like California is a little bit higher, like low, I mean, percent or two at best. Okay. California might be a little higher. Um, you know, it's a concern, but it's a really minor player in terms of human caused fire service. Is climate change a factor here? Uh, we, we, I mean, we, you know, yes. we, we see a lot. Okay. Yes, I'll absolutely. let you take, just go ahead and we're take here. it. Yeah. We're, we're already here. Climate change is here. It's been here for a while and we're seeing the impacts of more extreme fire weather. I'll go back to the three ingredients. Okay. The vegetation of the fuel. Uh, well, we can't do much. Well, we try to do stuff around the community. Second, uh, ignitions, humans, lightning. Can't do anything about lightning. Though climate change is making more lightning. So we deal with climate change. There is the weather. We're seeing more extreme fire weather parts of Canada. Uh, we're seeing longer fire seasons. We're seeing more lightning. And, you know, as I said, lightning's responsible for most of the area burned in Canada. 80 to 90% of very burned is due to lightning caused fires and they're increasing. So lastly, probably most importantly, as the temperature warms, the ability to the atmosphere to suck that moisture right out of the fuel increases almost exponentially. So it means drier fuels, unless we get more rain, but we're seeing generally hotter, drier summers. Drier fuels means it's easier for fires to start, easier for fires to spread. And it means there's more fuel to burn which leads to higher intensity fires like you're seeing on those who are watching and seeing on the screen, which are difficult to impossible to extinguish. I want to give a shout out, by the way, to that's independent uh, journalist Kyle Bertain. You can follow him online at Kyle Bertain WX. Uh, we'll put his uh, Twitter handle and his contact in our show notes on the podcast and on YouTube. Just astounding footage. Mike, how do you, how do you think the story changes over the next three to five to ten years on on how we understand and manage and, and live amongst these wildfires. Do you see significant changes coming to how, how cities or towns build or develop or manage these types of things or how human beings interact with these these forests? Yeah, it's, it's change is already happening, okay? And fire management has always been changing. It's adapting to best practices. And we've moved away from a model of all fire is bad. Okay, and Smokey Bear had kind of two messages. Only you can prevent forest fires, good message. The other one is kind of an inference that fire is bad and we have to put it out. Fire is natural, okay? In much of Canada, our forests survive and even thrive in this regime. You know, they have strategies, you know, uh, serotonous cones, cones that open with heat like fire. So you get the next generation. So we shouldn't put out all the fires all the time. We shouldn't fight mother nature. We should work with her as much as possible. Of course, if a fire starts two kilometers from Grand Prairie, we put it out. But if a fire starts in a more remote area, we get a fire weather forecast, we get a fire growth model, say where will fire go. And if it's not threatening anything, we should monitor it. And actually, at times, it's beneficial. You think of mountain pine beetle, fire is a very good agent at knocking down mountain pine beetle. Other strategies include sprinklers. Sprinklers can be very effective, but you have to remember Slave Lake, Fort McMurray, the fire entered the community, 
first thing that goes is municipal power mm -hmm. followed by municipal water pressure. So you need independent power, independent water, but these are possible and places do this. And so should we, um, you know, I mentioned fire smart earlier. Um, yeah. Allowing fire back on the landscape creates patches of recently burned areas, which are unlikely to reburn, or if they do, it's generally at lower intensity. So fire management can deal with it if it's an unwanted fire. So we're moving down this path and you know, we're making progress, but the bottom line is there's no technology fix. There's no magic pill, there's silver bullet, whatever you want to call it. We have to learn to live with fire and smoke. And unfortunately, the more we know about smoke, the more we know it's really bad for human health. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Mike Flanagan. Uh, as, as mentioned, you've been studying wildfires for more than 40 years. Do you remember like back when you were just a young buck, like season one or season two or three of of watching and studying these wildfires? Do you, is there a dramatic difference? I mean, maybe there are a thousand of them. But from when you started studying wildfires, like in the 1970s until now, is there one thing that has changed more than any other? So, and you can talk to fire bosses, you know, old dogs who've been around for 30 plus years. And they say, yes, things are changing. Fires are more intense. And that's, that's my comment as well. You know, don't get me wrong. We had intense fires in the past. We had pyrocumulonimbus in the past. Uh, fire generated thunderstorms. We had some of those in this recent event in Alberta. These these are incredibly uh, powerful, erratic, dangerous fire situations. We had in the past, but we're seeing more of them. So more frequently, arguably more intense. So yes, we are seeing more intense fires and more fire on the landscape. And that is a concern because, you know, Slave Lake happened and there was somebody in the paper, a government official saying, oh, it's a one-off. It may have been the premier. It won't happen again. And I was in the paper a couple of days later. Unfortunately, it will happen again. I can't tell you when or where, but it's going to happen again. I mean, we do a really good job, but, you know, you roll the dice and sometimes it's going to hit a community. And we, there was Fort McMurray, there's Lytton. And unfortunately, in the future, there'll be more community communities impacted by wildfire you may not appreciate this last question mike so feel free to just deflect it or tell me that it's not in your i know you're a wildfire expert you're not necessarily a political commentator but these types of situations are often politicized and i want to i'm going to talk to susan wright about this the political blogger right after i talk to you about the appropriate response and demonstrations of leadership and i'll note that uh danielle smith and rachel notley sat down together the other the other day with with the, both of their staffs and and talked about this uh collectively uh said danielle smith that she met with the leader of the official opposition to share experiences of how to support albertans uh, during these wildfires, she's made a pledge, Daniel Smith has, to continue to keep Rachel Notley informed of the wildfire situation across Alberta. I think a photo like this goes a long way, but I don't have to tell you that the, during the Fort McMurray fire, the NDP was criticized for, for some cut. And oftentimes these are like government budgets and, and these are line items and money's being shuffled around. Uh, right now we have a note from a, a real talker who says, every time these Alberta emergency alerts are blowing up my phone, for yet another wildfire evacuation in the region. I don't know about you, Mike. My phone went off like 15 times this weekend, and it's quite a shocking sound. This person says, just remember that the UCP 
completely cut the wildland firefighter repel program and the firefighter training grant. They cut the budget for seasonal firefighters by 12% last year, losing about 70 staff. And they go on to talk about how that will impact their vote. Now, I'm asking you this and, and get into this as much as you like on the political side of this. Uh, with regards to budgets and staffing and capabilities, is Alberta underfunded, understaffed, and thus under-equipped to fight these wildfires? What do you see from your area of study? So, you know, that's a difficult question to answer. And, you know, there's no fence sharp enough that a good Canadian can't sit on. Okay, so, uh, you know, you, you can't do more with less. And budgets were cut. And it does have an impact. Uh, how to measure that impact, that's beyond Mike. I'm a fire guy, I'm a weather guy, and I want to talk about what's going to come down the path for the, for the fire season. It, it's a hard question to answer. I mean, Alberta wildfires doing the best job they, they can. They've had cuts, and whether how much the impact is, I really can't say. I appreciate that, and I appreciate you taking the question, Mike. I, I didn't ask you to come on and get political, so so, but I, but I had to ask you. And, and 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 real talkers, of course, are putting these questions in front of us. So while we've got the expert in the chair, uh, we want to touch on it. Uh, Doctor Mike Flanagan, a wildfire expert for more than forty years. I know everybody across the country uh, that's covering this wants to talk to you. So we'll thank you for your time and really appreciate your expertise, Mike. My pleasure, Ryan. You got it. You can follow uh, Doc on, on Twitter at Mike Flanagan. And of course, we'll link to uh, to his account in our show notes like we do with all of our guests. Of course, you can also follow our official Twitter account at Real Talk RJ, where we announce our lineup every morning before the show live streams at 830 Mountain Time. That's 1030 Eastern. Of course, Susan on the Soapbox is next political blogger. She's a lawyer out of Calgary. Susan Wright will join us. And of course, we'll get to some of your comments as well. As a matter of fact, let me jump in on one of these now. I saw a comment from from Sharon. Aaron, I think it was, who was talking about the, the mental health impacts of all of this. And just basically, she, she said, I will tell you this. She said, these fires are worrying my little kids, says Sharon, says they're getting stressed with all the alerts and as well as, as how close some of these fires are getting to city centers. I talked to some folks yesterday from Edson, mm -hmm. uh, Johnny, that were evacuated and a lot of people in Parkland County. I know that these are local references, but for a lot of our audience, mm -hmm. um, they're going to know exactly where we're talking about. Was your phone going off like mine was this weekend? Yeah, and and my partner, Jatinder, she has like PTSD because when we were in Kelowna, it was the first time we experienced wildfires like up close. Oh, man. We could see them Kelowna's about, seen some about huge ones. four miles away on the in the valley on the mountains so she's getting these alerts and i'm not gonna lie she's already got like a, a go bag packed even though you know the chance is small that this will come into the to urban you know city center of edmonton but she's she it, it's really affecting her mentally yeah, yeah fires do get treated of course differently the closer they get mm -hmm. to population centers and things like that but what was it last week i think we saw some pretty dramatic footage of a, of a, of a brush fire yeah in the river valley that was i mean there was an angle to consider you know where the video was shot but mm -hmm. it appeared to be basically licking the exterior yeah. of the Fairmont Hotel McDonald. It wasn't actually quite as close as it looked, but, but looked still, very scary. it's unnerving for people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you look at these 
fire departments and the capabilities they have to fight these grass fires to a certain degree they can, but also with winds and everything else, they can change in a real hurry. Um, Sharon, talking about the little ones and their anxiety, uh, First On Site uh, is a company uh, that's, uh, that's actually done some polling here, and they uh, released its annual Wildfire Worries Survey. Uh, we received this back on May 3rd. So this is just a few days old, and they talked to uh, more than 1,500 Canadian adults from across the country examining their concerns, perceptions, and fears amid these summer wildfire threats. And the survey found that about half of Canadians, you would wonder why it's not more, to be honest, but about half of Canadians, 46%, would categorize themselves about as worried about the damage caused by wildfires. So 46% of Canadians worry about this. Now, regional concerns, John, in British Columbia, that number skyrockets oh, yeah. to 76% of mm-hmm. British Columbians say they're concerned. Albertans are second in line. A bit of a dramatic drop, actually. Mm-hmm. 55% of Albertans say they're concerned. So BC has seen, you know, Lytton. You remember the town of, of Lytton course, essentially yeah. burned to the ground Destroyed. Uh, a couple of summers ago. Mm-hmm. And then before that, 2017, 2018 were bad, bad fire seasons in BC. So that's still fresh with people there. Um, Alberta second, you know, understandably so mm-hmm. slave Lake, Fort McMurray, Chuck egg Creek. And then, and then it kind of falls off Quebec, 49%, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, 38%, Ontario, 32% where you don't see as much fire activity, especially yeah. in the early spring. But in regards to, you're talking about the people fighting it. There's also a video circulating. So I forget where it is in Alberta, but you know, cause of these high winds and everything, there was a helicopter pilot who was doing some runs, fighting some of the wildfires and just the wind, it was wasn't like necessarily a crash landing. Well, it was. He came in too hard and and kind of crashed. And there's some some uh, video of someone who was watching him come down. And so this is another thing that my wife sees and just you know she feels for the people fighting it, and it just adds to the 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 anxiety and and everything you're feeling right now. And it's it's hard. It's hard for a lot of people right now. You and think I'm, of I'm this- trying to be grateful. Because, you know, we're kind of in the city center here, so we're kind of protected because it's a lot of cement and it's a lot of, you know, stones, so... But it's just, it's really hard because I mean, people are scared. That's what I'm saying. And you think of the skill uh, being displayed by these pilots. Yeah. And then these, these you know, these jumpers, these fire jumpers, they, they drop them right in there Insane. with like shovels and chainsaws. And mm-hmm. they are, you know, I remember covering this. It was out by Hinton back in the day when I would, you know, sling a camera on my shoulder and head out and tell stories that way as, as a videographer. And they would take you, you know, safely and under escort into these fires mm-hmm. you know with experts uh, from srd and everything and that's and scary enough and, man these 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 fires are so hot mm-hmm. that the trunks of trees literally will explode mm-hmm. like they'll pop and explode and it's just a fascinating thing to see and then you get up in the air uh in these flyovers and you realize i mean i appreciated Mike there explaining to us we're talking about an area cumulatively mm-hmm. five times the city of Edmonton or the city of Calgary these are big footprints too so and some hot, perspective and the hot air like my friend shout out to Ryan Todd a, a new real talk listener every day now nice. uh, he's in Red Deer but he fights fires as well and even just training to fight a wildfire but being in a wildfire if you've ever had like bad turbulence on a plane the hot air, I mean, flying into these things, let alone fighting them, is is a nightmare. Like, mm. he said he threw up 
numerous, numerous times, even in just the training. And then when you actually get into it, it's it's a whole different. We're getting some personal stories here in our live chat. Kimberly says that her sister and brother-in-law, they lost their business in Lytton in B.C. That was just brutal. You remember the story was was like they had that town had had broken temperature records mm-hmm. like national temperature record they were i think it was off the top of my head like 47 48 degrees it was mm-hmm. wild and then about a week later mm-hmm. the fire came it was through a brutal there. summer in uh, lauren who's a retired uh, fire chief and a, and a great member of our uh, audience here says he was on scene when uh, a slave lake helicopter pilot lost his life uh, lauren says that sticks with you no kidding um tanya says the parallels to our management and attitudes to the pandemic have me shaking my head regularly fire is visual and dramatic and our response reflects that that's an interesting point from tanya if you're thinking about this reflecting on this you can send us an email anytime to talk at ryan uh, coming up in just a moment political blogger susan wright first i wanted to remind you if you, if you didn't have a chance on friday Uh, to check out our conversation with a really, really enthusiastic filmmaker. Raphael Sabarge joined us to talk about Only in Theaters. This is his documentary on one legendary family's fight to save an iconic Los Angeles theater. Only in Theaters is coming up on Wednesday, screening at Northwest Fest. That's Canada's longest-running independent documentary film festival, and we're thrilled to be supporting it here on Real Talk. Number one, if you're a Real Talk patron, if you support us on Patreon, first of all, thank you. Second of all, check your email because you've got an exclusive promo code to go see Only in Theaters free. You and a guest, check your email. The details are there. That's coming up on Wednesday. But, of course, you can also grab a ticket online at northwestfest.ca. For the first time ever, Northwest Fest International Documentary Festival and the Rainbow Visions Film Festival are screening back-to-back. That means you can check out both festivals at Edmonton's legendary Metro Cinema between now and the middle of May. You can find all the details again at northwestfest.ca. Some of the hottest films from some of the biggest film festivals around the world, including Sundance and South by Southwest. The Circle Friday on your calendar. That's when we're going to be sitting down. Welcoming back to the show a good friend, Omar Mualim. He's going to talk to us about his project. Have you heard about this one? The Lebanese Burger Mafia. Everybody's buzzing about it. He's been working on it for a long time, a labor of love. And, of course, for good reason, he's getting a lot of attention on that. I'm looking forward to it. Do you have plans for Mother's Day coming up? Friesen Brothers wants to let you know that every single one of their fresh market stores is going to be hosting an all-you-can-eat Mother's Day brunch featuring your favorite traditional brunch treats as well as special desserts created by their Red Seal chefs. All of it available for just $25 a person. Did we mention all-you-can-eat? And every mom in attendance will receive a complimentary flower to make her feel extra special. But that's not all. On Saturday, May 13th, a special demonstration featuring a giant 200-pound Swiss cheese wheel. They're going to cut it at all of Friesen Brothers Fresh Market stores. You ever seen a 200-pound cheese wheel before, pal? <laughs> no, I, I don't even know. Like, how big is a 200-pound cheese wheel? It it's enormous. Be, maybe, it's, maybe it's maybe it's more <laughs> dense than we think. I'm, I'm, I'm picturing kind of like a, I don't know, like an off-road truck yeah. tire. About that size, like a 33-inch tire? I saw a 100-pound one at the (laughs) Italian Center once when they had their anniversary. And that was 
enormous. So yeah. 200 must be. Well, hey, no surprise that Friesen Brothers is doing it bigger and better than them. 200 pounds of Swiss cheese on display next weekend at Friesen Brothers. Details at Friesen.com. If you're looking to give mom the sweetest gift on Mother's Day, make sure you swing by a Dairy Queen of Northwest Edmonton or Sherwood Park. Those are the locations in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. We learned a few weeks ago that Baseline Road sells more DQ soft serve than any other DQ in the country. And a big part of that, I would imagine, is these DQ Mother's Day cakes. A moment of sweet celebration with you and mom featuring DQ's signature fudge and crunch center surrounded by their world-famous soft serve. That's the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. And before we get to our next interview, we want to remind you about local environmental service and how they are bringing great service into all the communities that they serve. Number one, because they're still a family-owned business, and that means that their workers, their staff, and their ownership is living in the communities where they're working, right? They're a company that doesn't shy away from messy work. They work every day in communities in Alberta and Saskatchewan to bring great service to those communities. Don't believe them? Check out the feedback that they're getting online. Let me read this one from Jordan Rollison, who gives local environmental services five stars. It says, after years of annoyances with some competitors, I was fortunate to get in contact with Colton. We love Colton. From Local Environmental, who set up their workplace with great prices for recycling and roll-off bins and made the whole process easy to set up. Jordan goes on to say the drivers are friendly, accommodating, easy to deal with. Says the dispatch team was great as well. I can't recommend this business enough. Genuine people. Five stars from Jordan for Local Environmental Services. Of course, I don't have to tell you they sponsor Trash Talk every Friday right here on Real Talk. You can get your rant to us by emailing talk at ryanjesperson.com. The politics of wildfires. Sometimes it feels tacky and inappropriate to talk about, but the fact of the matter is Alberta's on fire as election campaigns continue. Now, in many communities, these campaigns have been put on pause for obvious reasons. Candidates aren't door knocking and they're doing everything they can to support the communities that are either under evacuation order or, of course, with that looming. It gives you some insight into what leadership looks like. Both parties, the NDP and the UCP, not trying to be opportunistic, but at the same time recognizing what's at stake. Keeping an eye on all of this is a Calgary lawyer and a political blogger by the name of Susan Wright. You've probably read her takes at SusanOnTheSoapbox.com. She's worked in the energy sector for 30 years and, uh, of course, finds that there's never a shortage of material to write about here in the Prairie Province. It's been a while since you and I have connected, and it's wonderful to have you back on the show. Thanks for making time for us. Well, thank you very much, Ryan. It's, as you said, it has been a while. We've been doing house renovations. My place has been all disrupted and it's a mess. But uh, it's nothing compared to what um, the the residents and the, the townspeople of um, Alberta have been going through. It's shocking when you think about it. And I was listening to John's story about his wife and, and the things that people are experiencing as they're running from these fires. Uh, it, this is huge. This is big. And I applaud the parties for taking the to have basically being decent enough to say we need to pause in certain places out of respect for and to help the people that uh, are being so severely impacted. 
Now, uh, I noticed today in the paper that uh, Daniel Smith is going to be reaching out to the federal government for assistance. I think that's great. Uh, I saw that photo as well that uh, she had, um, uh, Rachel Notley had extended uh, an offer of support and uh, they are meeting now to talk that through as well. And I think you can learn a lot by talking to people who have actually been through an experience like that. My, the one question I have though, um, when you see them coming together in a crisis, I really wish that they could come together, the parties could come together at the federal or the provincial level or municipal level more frequently and, and be more cooperative in the way they address issues because it shouldn't take a major crisis where people are fleeing for their lives to have the, the politicians who are, are responsible for keeping us safe to actually get their act together and say, hey, can you give me a hand? Yeah, but you, and you know the same thing that I'm about to say, and, and that doesn't sell with the base. It's not sexy and salacious. It's it's hard to lob hand grenades at your political opponents while you're working with them at the same time. We we, we lament this often on the show, kind of the current state of politics where we we really don't seem to see that kind of stuff anymore. That that cooperation across the aisle. Yeah, we, uh, you're right about that. And I think what's starting to happen is uh, while the base, certain elements of the base, uh, and this is probably true across all parties, do like to see their leaders going after the other side, many more people are getting fed up. And I, I talked to, you know, my, my daughter, for example, she's in her 30s. I, uh, I talked to my friends and they're sick to death of seeing people trying to make political points when the work that needs to be done is stalled. And you can look at that from the perspective of this wildfire. You can look at it from the perspective of healthcare. Um, just two big ones right there. To think about, couldn't we get more done if we were trying to learn from each other as opposed to tearing each other down? I mean, why is it that every single time a new party comes into to the, the legislature, be it um, uh, Daniel Smith's UCP replacing Jason Kenney's UCP, we have to start from scratch, rip things down, change things, and, and um, then pick up and carry on. If these people were running a corporation and they kept revamping everything the previous CEO had done, they would be fired. Their shareholders would be gone. Then they'd be saying, can you not accomplish something new? Do you always have to stamp your, put your own stamp on something the last guy did? Build on it. Make it better. Don't keep tearing it apart. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen that, right? With, and I mean, you're alluding to this, but with you know the, the, the heads, the directors, the, the bosses, so to speak, with agencies and boards and commissions, and oftentimes, uh, maybe not as much. I mean, there, there was a reasonably uh, significant amount of change uh, from the, the Jason Kenny watch to the Daniel Smith watch, but especially when you have a more significant partisan shift, right? When you go from the conservatives to the New Democrats or the New Democrats back to the conservatives, then you see, you know, what you might describe oftentimes as the cleaning house. Mm -hmm. and, and sure, okay, you're looking at a new leader coming in and wondering if they can trust their deputy, um, the, the deputy minister of a certain department. But there's no need to, to take a sort of a, a holus bolus approach to clean out everybody. But let's go back to this fire. There are people on staff at the in the government right now who went through the entire Fort McMurray fire. They would have a really good understanding, firsthand understanding of what it takes to make this work. And so I would hope that that uh, Danielle Smith is she's reaching out to people, reaches right across the board, not just to Rachel, not just to the federal government, but to everyone who's been working on that, who worked on the last one, because that was huge. 
uh, as Josh was or John was talking about his wife, and I remember driving my daughter back from BC. She she was changing jobs from being a nurse there to being a nurse here, and we were continually checking the um, road reports to see where we could go and not get trapped. And it, it's terrifying. And we weren't even on top of the fire. The fire wasn't on top of us the way it is right now. So um, it, it, this is a life and death situation. And that's why the cooperation is important. But there are other situations where life and death, is, as one of your earlier callers had, or said, isn't as obvious, but we need to work together to get there. I'm not trying to be cute with this segue, but, but you, you write about a very notable death uh, at SusanOnTheSoapbox.com. You write about perhaps Canada's greatest singer-songwriter, uh, Gordon Lightfoot, and his passing just a number of days ago, just about a week ago. Um, what does Gordon Lightfoot's passing have to do with wildfires, and what got you thinking yeah. so poignantly about it? Yeah, actually, my husband said the same thing to me when he saw the blog. He said, okay, you put together two very different topics. But uh, uh, what happened when he died? It was strange because we all know Gordon Lightfoot. I remember him from when I was in, high, in university. And um, I didn't think about him much in his later years. But when he died, I thought about him all the time. And I realized it was because he was so quintessentially Canadian. And he could have made his career anywhere and done anything, but he he chose to come back here and he was very successful. And he talked about Canadian things. He talked about his yellow canoe. Uh, there's a there's a blurb online that basically shows you how that canoe, they have it in a canoe museum and it bent in half. And then another crew came down on a different canoe and then popped open again and got them um, back to safety because it was stuck in a bunch of rocks. But uh, he was so Canadian and he sang about Canadian things. And this struck me as something that we here are blessed to be in this country and in this province. And we are able to um, uh, just enjoy this phenomenal freedom that we have. We're one of the top five total democracies in the world. And we have we live here in this magnificent place. And yet we have people who are trying to tear that down, people who are trying to convince us that um, the country's broken, the province is broken, there are bad people amongst us that we have to eradicate or overcome or to take back our province from. And I think this is completely wrong because it, it will, if we're not careful, it will cause us to lose what we cherish the most. Yeah, I mean, you talk about take back. It's it's been trademarked, right? It's capital T, capital B. Take back Alberta, and this is uh, driving uh, significant developments within the United Conservative Party. Uh, they're not doing it illegally. They're they're doing it uh, in democratic fashion. They're they're taking control of constituency associations. They've taken control of the board, uh, and they're putting a real stamp on the identity of the party. Uh, I don't know that the average Albertan actually completely grasps the magnitude of this this identity stamp. Uh, what do you make of there's there's a million storylines I want to ask you about uh, and, and some in particular, some policy and platform questions. But what do you make of this take back Alberta movement and the impact that it's going you know, it could have, let me say, on this 2023 election? Well, I think that it is. Um uh, as you said, what they have achieved as far as taking over UCP boards and, and directing the UCP agenda, or at least Danielle Smith's agenda, uh, is a significant concern. And it, and it is because, um, as, as you mentioned, they're, they're, they're a, a strange, in my mind, insular group that, from what I've read in uh, newspapers like the Globe and Mail, have a strong uh, religious undertone. And um, they, they, 
seem to believe that that their freedoms have been taken from them by people like me. And the the thought that they would have as much control as they appear to have over the agenda that Danielle Smith is rolling out. And, and you see people like Rob Anderson and others bringing in the free Alberta strategy, which dovetails nicely with the way Take Back Alberta is moving forward. That is a very frightening thing to me because it's easy to get people mobilized with the headline. And then when you start to read the story behind it or you read the Free Alberta Strategy, I mean, I've read that document quite a few times. It makes no sense. But it's the kind of thing that someone can throw in front of you and say, well, two lawyers and a political scientist have drafted this, therefore it must be good. And it is good because it dovetails with your belief that you've been hard done by somehow. So the fact that, um, now I saw this on Twitter, so you always have to be a little careful when you see certain things on Twitter. But I do recall seeing... Um, a, a little post that was put up there by people in the Take Back Alberta group who said, when you go to UCP rallies, do not wear your Take Back Alberta t-shirt or say that's who you are because the media is trying to make us out as something we're not. Well, actually, from what I've seen of the media, they're, t they're reporting exactly who the Take Back Alberta people are. And if someone has to hide that their identity yeah, at a political rally for the UCP, then that troubles me because... Why are you coming in wearing a mask? Mm. If you if you truly have the answer for Alberta, you will stand there and and explain it to me. And if you're trying to cre um, push forward a different agenda, then then you're hiding, and that's not good enough. This is a democracy. We expect transparency, and we expect to know who Danielle Smith is and who is pulling her strings. Just the same way as we want developers who are contributing tons of money to a campaign to be listed there. We want to know who's got your number. We want to know who's going to be getting the, the phone calls and who, who she's going to answer, who she's not. And, and that's kind of, it's funny, I'll jump around a bit here. This is the way I do my blog. I'm hey, this is how we do the show too, Susan. Okay, well, so the what this triggered in my mind was actually the, the arena discussion. And, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of um, Daniel Smith comes forward and says, I've got $330 million here for you, Alberta, lucky or Calgary, lucky you. I'm just trying to pull up the uh, chart that, that I was looking at. Um, yeah, so here we are. We've got this magnificent contribution to build this magnificent arena. And all you need to do is vote for me and bingo, the money's yours. Well, you know, but we have to vote for her and she has to get it through her cabinet. And my question on that is that what if her cabinet is made up of take back Alberta people? You know, you can bet on it that that rural Alberta, which is not keen on the idea of funding an, uh, an arena in Calgary, is yeah. not going to be keen on their CEOs or sorry, their um, their MLAs taking this thing forward and blessing it. So I need to know who's behind the scenes in order to understand whether I can trust what you're telling me you're going to give me. Uh, that's leaving aside the fact that that it's a terrible bargain. You know, when somebody offers you um, your taxpayer dollars, uh, not just my taxpayer dollars, but all of Alberta's taxpayer dollars to put an arena into Calgary and says, oh, by the way, the billionaire owners are only on the hook for 40 million just at the start and they can trickle it back to us at 17 million dollars a year. That's insanity. And I go back to my experience, um, uh, you know, on the executive team of, of big oil, oil and gas companies in the energy sector. That would never fly in front of a, a, a real board of directors. They'd be looking at it saying, so where's the benefit to me? Why is the third party, there's three parties in this thing, province, city, and the, the claims owners. How come they're on the hook for $40 million and we're taking all the risk for everything else? 
So what do you, Susan, what do you mean? How, how is like Calgary's council unanimously supporting this deal? Then we had Jeremy Farkas on the show last week. People should watch it if they didn't catch him. He was breathing fire on this one. He, he has said, I can't remember his exact words. He wants to know how his former colleagues can live with themselves. How do you think this thing gets unanimous approval from a council that it seems like such unlikely bedfellows them and the UCP? That, you know, that is exactly the question Calgarians are asking. You know, we know these councillors better. I know who my councillor is and I know what he usually stands for. This is so out of character. And I think what we had here was was people who were convinced that when the province is offering us $330 million, which they didn't offer to Edmonton, uh, we have to grab it. Free money, let's take it. It's not free money. It's my money. But the reality is... I think they sold out. I think that they were concerned that if they stood up and said, I don't want to support this, that somehow if Danielle was elected and if this thing went through, the the sliver of people, I mean, actually, they're half of, of Calgary is supportive of the arena, whether they're supportive of it on uh, with the, them paying this much of the bill is a different question. But um, I think they were afraid that to go against it the third time or fourth time or however many times this is would cost them the votes later. But they're going to be up for re-election in 2025. There will, If this goes ahead, there will be a massive hole in the ground. We will be seeing the cost overruns coming rolling in the door over and over again. And these guys are going to pay. I, I read a, a blurb that uh, Councillor Carroll put out, and it made no sense. It made absolutely no sense as far as this is a better deal than the last one. Well, in the last one, the flames were on the hook for a lot more money. This was a um, this is going to give us additional development around the area. Well, we could have done that anyway without dragging all of Alberta taxpayers in on the hook. Um, you know, there's nothing to say that another government won't give us some money later. But this is an appalling deal. And I think they did it because they were under pressure to get the thing signed up before the writ dropped. And if there's one thing you learn in business is to set up an artificial deadline because you can jam somebody into doing something that they won't necessarily, you know, if they thought about it for two seconds, they might stop. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's like me when I'm like, I click on, on uh, the Instagram link, you know, and then, and then I, and then I'm looking to buy something that's tacky and I, I don't actually need it, but it's three in the morning. And so I'm curious. Yeah. And so I go check out the website and the minute I land on the website, the timer starts for some reason, yes. the big red mm -hmm. timer that's counting down from 10 minutes. And it just makes sense in our subconscious that we're on the clock for some reason. Yeah. It's just yeah. how human psychology works. We're easily manipulated, but you don't yeah. like to see that happening when you're talking about a billion dollar development involving tax dollars. And I think this is the thing. This is where our councillors and our mayor lost sight of who they represent, because uh, there was nothing to force that to happen that way. If if Danielle Smith was prepared to make that deal and offer her three hundred and thirty million before the election, she should be just as prepared to offer it after the election. Yeah. Hey, so do you think I mean, we, we've debated this uh, and, and obviously this is a story that people are going to be talking about for a number of years, you know, if and when the deal is struck and then if and when the ground is broken and yada, yada, yada. I mean, we'll follow it all the way through. Uh, but but like. I've heard it asserted on this show from some people that don't believe that Danielle Smith wants this to be an election issue. I call malarkey on that. I think, of course, she does. Obviously, she does. I think it insults our intelligence to suggest she doesn't. Other folks have said Rachel Notley is the one in the particularly tough spot because she can't rip on the deal too bad or it gets spun as ripping Calgary's connection to its hockey club, but she also can't really endorse the deal because that's against everything that a party like the NDP stands for. Yeah. 
Uh, actually, you're right. I mean, and I think that's true. I think that uh, Don Braid was writing a column about it, and he's, he's, he characterized this as a trap for Notley. Now, she's managed to be very adept as she's worked her way through it. I was at her kickoff rally, and she was asked that question by some of the uh, reporters. And she was asked one question and a follow-up. So as you know, she actually responds. And she basically walked that fine line where she said, we don't have the details to actually uh, assess this thing properly. And on that, she's right. The the deal is based on a an unbinding, a non-binding MOU. MOUs, memorandums of understanding, I've done lots of them in my career, are the outline of a deal and they carry the most important elements in them. So um they, they should be laid out. We haven't seen them. And even then, they're not going to be binding on anyone. Now, what concerns me is the articles I've seen in the paper since then, where City Council has said, uh, they've been asked the question, are we going to get any revenue from that? They said, well, that's still under negotiation. That is a critical component of the deal. It should not be something that is left to be decided later. And that says to me, you're not getting it. Because if I'm the Flames owner, and I have not put that into the MOU. I am not giving you any revenue from tickets, sales, period. And you can't force me. Everything we're talking about here is, is not binding. It's like it's written on tissue paper. Yeah. But it's turned into this election thing. I think actually what happened was this was supposed to be a trap for Rachel and it turned into a trap for the city council. We will not forget this. Uh this is uh yeah i mean obviously you and i will let's check in and, and chat about this you know every six months or so because it's obviously a story that will remain relevant here uh and could get particularly interesting depending on on how some of these ridings in calgary swing i want to ask you a bigger picture and, and and i opened with this on the show today talking about what not just what is in the united conservative election platform but what is not uh people can check it out for themselves at unitedconservative.ca that's the website move Moving Alberta forward is the slogan. They talk about tax cuts for all Albertans. Danielle Smith has, has pledged, has promised that they will not raise taxes. Uh, they've got their jo uh, job growth and diversification strategy, public health care guarantee, uh, yada, yada, yada. $10 a day child care, which is kind of an interesting one as well, considering the optics and who that's in partnership with. But that's not my point. Here's the page UCP on the issues, and you can go on Ukraine and agriculture and service Alberta and tech and the Treasury Board. You know what you won't find uh, is a promise to pull out of CPP and establish an Alberta pension. You won't find anything about an Alberta police force, and you certainly won't find anything about the Sovereignty Act under United Canada, the Alberta Sovereignty under United Canada Act, I should say. Um, if the United Conservatives win the election. If Danielle Smith is premier and she hasn't campaigned on these initiatives, does she still have a mandate? Can she still pursue them? I mean, in theory, she can do whatever the hell she wants. But you look at all that criticism around the NDP bringing in the carbon tax and what was the loudest objection it was that they didn't campaign on it. Can you take us into this? Oh, I think that's a super legitimate point. I think that um, when you're looking, if, when they are talking about something as fundamental as taking Alberta out of CPP and as fundamental as uh, changing the RCMP, which will have tremendous costs, and, and there may be issues with trying to get the RCMP to service better, but the, the discussion about just, that's it, we're throwing them out. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, the Alberta Sovereignty Act. These are huge. CPP is gigantic. And we have paid into CPP all our lives. This is my money. 
we're talking about my money and to have somebody who is toying with the idea of taking us out of CPP and who has a report ready. Somewhere she had said that they had done a report and it is ready, but it will not be released until after the election, which is coincidental about that. And to basically say that I will not discuss that with you right now, because why? Well, because it, it may be something that will drive voters away. I think that is shoddy. I think that's cheap. And I think that means you have no mandate at all. If you really think that you want to run a referendum on CPP, then tack it on the bottom of the vote ballot. Stick it on there and ask me what I think about it. And I'll tell you no. So um, I, I, I would argue that she has no mandate at all. And frankly, if she moves forward with CPP, you're going to see the biggest rallies and protests outside of the legislature that you ever have seen in the history of Alberta. I had a firefighter come up to me a few days ago and he said uh, he, he walked out to me. He introduced himself by announcing how he's voted uh, ever since he's voted. <laughs> this was like his first sentence. He says, Jespo, I voted conservative my entire life. He says, but if they touch my pension, he says, they're going to hear about it. I mean, this was the one thing for this guy that was his number one election issue. And, and that was kind of, to be honest with you, I mean, there have been some pundits talking about it, but that interaction with that guy was what put this on my radar because they're not campaigning on it. They're not talking about it. I'm sure it will come up in the debates uh, or in the debate. I, I, yeah. And right? I think it should. I think that that um, Notley and I think anyone who is a supporter of UCP should press them hard. Because, uh, I mean, I know where I stand on it, but if you are actually going to basically give the UCP your blind vote, then you are risking everything. And for me, the responsible thing and the ethical thing, and that's kind of ironic talking about politicians and ethics, but let's, let's assume for a minute that they're ethical. The ethical, responsible thing to do would be to say, here's where I stand on CPP. Here's where I stand on, on the RCMP. And here's where I stand on the Sovereignty Act, which I put in place as my number one promise and I have not yet used. And I have, am I going to use it? What am I going to use it for? Where am I going to use it? Because this gets back to Gordon Lightfoot, right? We were talking about the, the, um, the, the way he, he cherished being a Canadian and the importance of being Canadian. These things connect us to Canada. And to basically say, I'm going to toss that away without even asking your permission is is irresponsible un and unethical. We've kept you longer than we asked for, but I got to ask you about one final thing. You write about it again. People can check out SusanOnTheSoapbox.com. They have to follow you on Twitter at SusanSPBX. I like that. You're ahead of the trend, by the way. All the fancy restaurants, you know, they're eliminating all the vowels in their titles. But, <laughs> but you were doing that on, on Twitter way before. Uh, you were in attendance. Uh, I guess it was, yeah, a few weeks ago. April 18th, right? At the, the Calgary Telus Convention yeah. Center. Kind of a neat format uh, for people that, that weren't aware of this report to the community event. It was Calgary's mayor, uh, Dr. Jody Gondek, interviewing both Rachel Notley and Danielle Smith. Now, the interviews were separate, so they didn't treat it like a debate. Uh, but I credit both party leaders for showing up to that. Um, and I think that some people may have been surprised that Danielle Smith agreed to sit down with Jody Gondek or vice versa. Because if you listen to the rumors, uh, they're not exactly tight. They're not exactly aligned <laughs> on all their priorities right now. Uh, what, what was most notable of that event for you and what really jumped out at you? Uh, actually, that was a really good event. Like you said, the format, the, the venue was perfect. Um, uh, uh, Rachel went first. She did her, her spiel. She had a lot of good things to say. Uh, then along came Danielle Smith. And um, uh, 
uh, Jyoti was very professional in the way she asked the questions. Uh, we didn't learn anything new from, from uh, Danielle Smith. But the one thing I noticed which was interesting was that, that this event has been, that was headline, Bill. This is the big deal. And when I got up to leave after it was over, a good chunk of the audience had already left. And that struck me as very strange because this woman is campaigning to be the premier of the province. We all knew this. We put in the time to show up downtown and to observe this. So unless everybody had to pick up kids at daycare, it struck me as strange that that, that many people would leave. So um, her her the not only did she not have the full attention of the audience at the end, but what she was telling us was old stuff. Uh, she hinted at the arena, but most of it was old stuff. And and what she also talked about, which spooked me a bit, was how influential her chief of staff, um, Malcolm, I think his name is Malcolm Smith, was yes. in setting the parameters for her, her treatment, the involuntary treatment, uh, involuntary incarceration or whatever you want to call it, of people who are suffering from drug addiction. That took up a lot of airspace and it bothered me because I thought, who is this man and how does he have this much influence over the premier of the province who has the power of the state to do what she wants to do? So those were the two highlights for me as far as what really hit home. Are you uh, are you familiar with, with his story? I am. She told us his story. Yeah. So it, it's, actually, it, it's, mm-hmm. I've, I've never uh, I've never interviewed him uh, Individually, like I don't have a firsthand experience in talking with him. Uh, my understanding is is that he was on the street. Like, yeah, uh, we- this is this is what she said. She said Malcolm would be fine if I told you this. He was on the street for four years in East Vancouver, and a, a cop gave him a choice of going into rehab or um, uh, going to jail. Uh, and that story, that part of it changes a bit if, depending on when you hear it. But the, the the bottom line was he chose to go into rehab and he's been clean ever since. And my point is that's great for Malcolm. It works for Malcolm. It doesn't mean it works for everyone else. Yeah. Marshall and Smith, by the way. The, sorry? Marshall Smith. Marshall, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it doesn't mean it works for everyone else. And it's it's scary to think that one person in her staff can determine policy that will govern us all. Mm. Yeah, that that one that that's kind of like that's another story flying under the radar. And I take that as like an assignment for a show like this to to do more justice to that story. And and uh, the Tai has done some reporting on this. People can check it out. Uh, this was uh, published back on uh, May 12th of last year. OK, so this is this is coming up on a on a year ago at the Tai.ca. The man behind Alberta's pull away from harm reduction uh, as deaths mount. Uh, Marshall Smith has driven the province's focus on abstinence over safer drug supplies. Now, that's not coverage of this involuntary uh, reality, but I have seen people that work in harm reduction that, that uh, I, troubled is, is a bit of a flaccid word. I would say outraged is probably yeah. uh, closer to accurate there. Um, but yeah, it's it's another storyline that I think people are talking about. And, and one of the promises, Susan, that we make people and, and you essentially do the exact same thing on on your political blog is that we want people to have informed questions to ask and relevant questions to ask, not just for them, but their families and their communities when they hear that door knock and when these candidates or their teams are showing up and, and campaigning for their vote. It's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's right. And and that's what I was thinking about when we were talking about the arena discussion. My vote means something. It is valuable. So before I hand it over to you, I want to know what you're going to do with it. Absolutely. Uh, you can read Susan Wright's work, excellent work, at SusanOnTheSoapbox.com, and you can follow her on Twitter 
as well uh, for 30 years. She's worked in the energy industry. She obviously has a great command and understanding of what she's talking about in politics and business, uh, a lawyer and political blogger and a great friend of the show. Are you out of the woods? I mean, I know you never want to ask anybody a question like this. you got to find some wood to knock on. But with regards to this home reno, I know that there were some some twists yeah. and turns. Are finally, you- finally, the, the plumbing disaster is fixed and the paint is finally finished. Okay, and good. actually, and all the electrical and knob and tubing is now gone. Oh, so, that's it. Oh, so you restored like a, is a beautiful old home that's now got all the yeah. modern touches. Yeah. Well, the insurance company said they wouldn't insure us unless we fixed it. So yeah. that was kind of, you know. Well, now you can Shocking. now you can rest easy as well. So it's that's yeah. great. You're all up <laughs> that's to right. date. Awesome, Susan. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye. You bet. Uh, That's Susan Wright. Susan on the soapbox. Uh, You can let us know what you think about that interview. And and by the way, if if you missed me talking to former counselor Jeremy Farkas, uh, you remember he was a candidate for mayor uh, when Jody Gondek won that last municipal election. You can find it. That interview was a week ago today. Uh, The need to know storylines, the Alberta election issue. uh, That was our uh, super episode, John, last Monday on May 1st. That was when... uh, Mm -hmm. The writ dropped and, of course, officially kicking off election season in Alberta. And so we had a great episode there. I know a lot of you checked it out uh, on YouTube and on the podcast. And Jeremy Farkas came in. I was impressed with him. You know, and I think that a lot of audience members, um, even, can I say even the lefties, like a lot of people, (laughs) we got feedback from a lot of people. I would say that episode more than any other, I would say in the past couple of months, we got more feedback on that one. And from a lot of people saying, I expected to bristle. I remember these were someone's exact words i expected to bristle at the sound of jeremy farkas's voice and they said that they emerged really impressed with Mm -hmm. what he brought to the table so great episode sometimes you get people out of politics and for him i would say for now i don't think that jeremy farkas is going to be out of politics forever um but it, it frees them up in a certain way to to speak a little bit differently and 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 you know i mean it's this is a liberated guy that was talking and of course you can check that out on youtube uh, on our channel thanks for subscribing in advance or anywhere you get your podcasts this conversation was presented by mike and his team at eden landscaping uh, they're online at landscapeedmonton.ca that's where you can check out their portfolio and get a sense of what they do what you'll notice when you're there again landscapeedmonton.ca is that they've got so many different applications of their design ability and of course that construction as well. You can go ultra modern, you can pursue that more natural beauty, maybe you want the big boulders or the water features in your yard. Is it stunning stonework, maybe a new patio that you have envisioned? They do it all at Eden Landscaping. They're designing spaces that you can entertain in, spaces that are butterfly friendly, spaces that can produce food, spaces that represent a fusion of need and style. This is why they keep earning the return business and referrals of clients that have been with them for the more than 20 years they've been doing business. We're proud here at Real Talk to partner with Eden Landscaping at landscapeedmonton.ca. Hey, all this talk about wildfire, it's got us thinking about our friends at Complete Care Restoration. I mean, this is the team that sits there and you you can tell on their faces, they care about their clients and customers. And so when they hear about fire damage or when they hear about a flood, or when they hear about somebody opening up a wall for a renovation and discovering it's full of black mold or asbestos, you know, they feel that. You can tell they care about the outcome. They care about your satisfaction. We've seen it firsthand. They built this studio of ours, and that's why after seeing them in action, we can recommend them with two thumbs up. 
an unreserved endorsement for complete care restoration. If you find yourself in a jam, make them your first call. You can get in touch with Complete Care Restoration at 780-454-0776. If you're a professional engineer that's looking for a change of pace, maybe an entirely new career opportunity, right now you need to go to apexautomation.ca. They're hiring. You can click on the link to learn more and apply to join their team today. This is a company that puts people over profits. It's a company that prioritizes giving people back their time, not just their clients, but their team members as well. And considering that they're leading the charge in automation across the country, it goes without saying that the career opportunities are plentiful and the opportunity to grow your career is everywhere at Apex Automation. Whether you're looking to get into autonomous vehicles and machinery, robotics, remote terminal units, whether you want to work in BC, Alberta, the US, Apex has a fit for you today. If you're just coming out of an engineering school, maybe down at the University of Calgary, the University of Alberta, UBC or elsewhere, check out apexautomation.ca today. The first show of every week, our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy give us a chance to just focus on the positives, right? To, to take a look outside of the regular news cycle and fill our buckets with something good. We call it positive reflections. And we have an amazing story today out of Bristol, England. Have you seen this one? A remarkable rescue. This is a stranded dog that will see, we hope, many more sunrises thanks to a heroic effort from the firefighters at Temple Fire Station in Bristol, England. They were called out to Yate Quarry. Now, this is obviously a, a very ominous-looking type scenario. For those of you listening on the podcast, this is a cliff. This is a drop straight down. And this little fella, he's a nine-month-old Springer Spaniel, had somehow found his way. He had fallen after tumbling down the walking path while on an evening stroll with his human companions. John, can you imagine that happening in front of you? You would Ugh. be distraught. So they call the fire department, and thanks to training and experience, a firefighter was winched down with a harness, lowered down the steep side of the quarry to rescue this stranded pup. Now, it had fallen at least 30 feet. That's 10 meters, which meant the firefighters had to set up a custom winch setup. Now, thankfully, uh, despite you know uh, sustaining a broken leg, which isn't great, the dog suffered what they're characterizing as minor injuries and will make a full recovery. This video that we're showing you is actually captured in part by the police department's drone squad. They were there, and the number one thing everybody's talking about right now is that tail wagging. This nine-month, now ten-month-old Springer Spaniel pup that we wish many, many more successful and safe walks with the owner. It made us smile. We thought it might make you smile too. If something that you experienced you think would be a great fit for positive reflections, if you'd love for real talkers to hear about your observation, your interaction, maybe a random act of kindness, you can send us a note. Either use our hashtag RealTalkRJ or send us an email with the subject line 
Positive Reflections. It's presented Mondays on Real Talk by our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy. They're hiring too. You can check out the link at kubienergy.ca. Coming up on tomorrow's show, he's in transit today, and so Charles Adler is going to join us on a Tuesday. We'll talk about the coronation of King Charles, plus we'll get into it, politics, week two of the Alberta election campaigns. A little bit later on this week, you already know this if you subscribe to our email via our website at ryanjesperson.com, Public Safety Minister Bill Blair is going to join us. We're going to talk to Palestinian-Canadian organizer Musa Kaskas. And don't forget, Omar Mualim is going to tell us all about his feature film, The Lebanese Burger Mafia. If there's a story you'd love to hear on Real Talk and you're not hearing it yet, you know where to find us. And thanks to everybody that rates and reviews this podcast wherever you download it. Make it a great Monday, friends, or whatever day it is when you're catching this episode. And thanks for being a part of Real Talk. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, executive producer Josh Dunford, technical producer John Hicks, general manager Katie Cook Chivers, account coordinator Lawrence Durlego, human resources Lena Shepard, website design Mike Johnston, voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.